Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WAB in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we near the end of another week sheltering in place. The work of performing artists is made complete when an audience gathers in a theater or concert hall. With public spaces shut down, many artists have learned to pivot. Today, how the Alliance Theater is engaging audiences with a virtual play club, where a seat is reserved in your house and admission is free. We'll also hear about the Atlanta Music Project, as it continues to provide a haven for young musicians in underserved neighborhoods. They're giving lessons and concerts online. First, a punk rock star writing words without music on the nature of freedom. Billy Bragg will join Atlanta music journalist Chad Radford for a Zoom discussion of his career and two most recent books, The Three Dimensions of Freedom and Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. Billy Bragg, it is really a delight to speak with you, and I thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Lois. It's great to be here. Let's talk about your work, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, first. It's around 15,000 words. It's in the style of a political pamphlet that type Tom Paine wrote or George Orwell. What appeals to you about this type of writing in pamphlet form? Well, I'm really, I'm at heart, people think of me as a songwriter, but I think fundamentally I'm a communicator. If I have an opportunity to communicate, I'm always eager to use that platform, whether it's writing a song, doing a gig, writing a book, speaking to you and your listeners today. It gives me an opportunity to express my view. And over the years, I've responded to events in the world by writing songs and felt empowered by that. But recent developments in my country and yours particularly 
have led me to take a much more measured view of uh, how to respond and to try and put my ideas together in, in a book. Not a huge academic study of the nature of freedom, but something a little bit more immediate, as you said, in the spirit of Tom Paine or George Orwell. And so when my publishers asked me if I would be interested in writing a pamphlet about something, the, the notion of freedom being more than just liberty is something that I've, I've spoke about, I've written songs about, to try and lay that out in a, in a short polemic was quite a, quite a challenge, something for me to do that's outside of my usual experience. It's interesting to think about Tom Paine, George Orwell, Certainly Tom Paine was a radical thinker and a revolutionary. You look to unite people. And you mentioned how the three dimensions of freedom is addressed specifically toward the issue of free speech. You said that in order to ensure we all have access to free speech, we must and I'm quoting you here, look beyond the one-dimensional notion of what it means to be free by reconnecting to liberty, to equality, and to accountability. I know this idea of accountability is very important to you. Would you elaborate? Yeah, I think that freedom is a, an abstract idea. I think it's, it's very interesting that in an attempt to define freedom, your founding fathers called upon life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are in themselves ambiguous ideas that mean different things to different people. So when we imagine ourselves to be free because we're allowed to say whatever we want to say, that doesn't really mean everybody has the opportunity to say what they say. Very often under those circumstances, the loudest voices win out. So firstly, you need the respect that comes with equality Liberty empowers you to express your opinion, but equality is reciprocal. You have to respect the rights of others to also say their piece. But even just with those two ideals, you could still end up with a shouting match. What you need fundamentally to create a space in which everybody can express their opinion in a reasonable way, you need accountability. You need to be able to hold people to account for their actions and for the opinions that they have expressed. And I think that's a, a really crucial three-dimensional space in which not only we want our politicians to work in, but as individuals, we should think of when talking to one another on social media. And as you explain it, it seems exquisitely obvious. And yet it's really a moral question, don't you think? It is indeed a moral question. And for a long time, it was in that sphere. But I think one event has brought the issue of accountability front and center into our public discourse. And that is the election of Donald Trump, because not all types of freedom are positive. There's a very dangerous kind of freedom, and that is impunity. And I'm afraid President Trump, and in some ways, Boris Johnson in my country, have lived their lives without being held responsible for the actions that they've taken. And when you have someone like that holding the levers of political power, then accountability becomes more than just a moral ideal. It becomes a, a line 
which those of us who believe in a free society have to hold that line and say, no, you must be accountable for your actions. You must be accountable for the things that you've said. And it's been difficult to do that, both with President Trump in your country and with Boris Johnson to some extent in my country. Your message is one of tolerance, and you certainly welcome people with varying opinions, different politics. How can music bring about this responsibility associated with it? Well, in order for accountability to happen, people have to be willing to call people out. And music has a role in that. But more importantly, I think, the currency of music, whether it's political music or pop music, any kind of music, the currency is empathy. That's what we're connecting with when a song moves us. We're very fortunate if we're moved by music because we're able to feel empathy for emotions uh, and for individuals, perhaps, that we've never met, emotions that we've never experienced ourselves. That's the power that music has. And at the moment, we live in a time where empathy is derided. People who express compassion for others are dismissed as being politically correct. And political correctness doesn't even exist. It's a trope. It's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. So by bringing people together, by listening to music, by feeling empathy together, we begin to push back against those people who would divide us, those people who would single out individuals for blame. Empathy, music brings us together and that's the role it plays. It doesn't have the agency to actually make change, Lois, unfortunately, that's been my experience, but it is possible to bring people together. Which of your songs do you think demonstrate those ideas most vividly, Billy? I have a song called There Is Power in a Union, which talks about organising in the workplace for rights, for wages, for people being able to hold the management accountable in the workplace. I think this is absolutely crucial because accountability to me is the, the base of all great social movements. You know, if you look in the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was about accountability. But if you look at the frontline struggles in the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the environment, the school strikers, they're all attempts to hold those in power to account. They don't have a clear connection, but the thing that does connect them all is accountability. So this issue of accountability, it's not, it's not a left or right issue. It's a, a universal idea. And, and we, on the, we on the left have to be as accountable as anybody else. You'll be speaking at one of Atlanta's independent bookshops, Acapella Books, as we mentioned. In what ways are indie bookstores vital to ensuring 
free speech and liberty in the way that you talk about in your pamphlet? I think indie bookstores um, and record stores as well are places where ideas come together, many different ideas come together. Reactionaries often talk about the free market of ideas, but they're the first people to try and close down debate by calling political correctness or virtue signaling or whatever it is, accusing people of being woke. They're always trying to close down debate. We need a much wider debate. There are limits to that debate. Even under your constitution, there are limits to freedom of speech. It doesn't give you the right to be abusive, but it does give you the right to offend. It does give you the right to express your opinion, though it might be unfashionable. And that's what bookshops do. They should hold the space in which to find ideas, to dive into them and also, if possible, get a decent cup of coffee. <laughs> that always helps, I find. The, the kind of gets the juices flowing, in my experience. And a nice cosy armchair, Lois, as well, I find, as I've got older. <laughs> you took a very bold step when you decided to enter the army when you did. A moment ago, you spoke about workers organizing and workers' rights. You grew up in a factory town. At what age did you know that that was not a life for you? Well, actually quite early. When I was at school, when I was 14 and 15, we were taken to the car factory, the Ford's factory at Dagenham, which we were all being educated to work there. And I, I didn't like it at all. It was much too noisy, much too hot. It seemed like a vision of Hades to me. So I had to get a plan together to escape from that. And my plan was to be in a punk rock band. And when that failed, and I faced the possibility of going back to live at my mum's house and having to deal with the reality of growing up in that town, that's when I cashed in my chips and joined the army. Again, to escape having to work in the car factory. And that was a positive experience for you, as it turned out. It was. I mean, basically, it was a way of erasing my past and starting again. It was a reboot, if you like. And part of the reason was because I wanted to disavow myself of the notion I could ever be a singer-songwriter. And I thought that would probably knock it out of me. But it actually <laughs> inspired me more. And I suddenly realised I was, I was going to have to get extricate myself from the uh, Royal Armoured Corps and get back into Civvy Street and give it one more go. And at the time, I mean, the British Army is a volunteer army. So after basic training, you have the opportunity to leave if you can muster up the funds to leave which I did and it was in the end the army was kind of like a, a sabbatical for me and it gave me the courage to step up in front of a hostile audience on my own playing solo which I'd never done before and kind of launched me off into a, a solo career. One with a rather enormous reach we should add and tremendously influential as well. I'm intrigued with Roots, Radicals, and Rockers as well. The subtitle of that is How Skiffle Changed the World. Would you talk about skiffle? And it may even require a definition for some listeners. Definition. I could give you a definition of skiffle, Lois. Skiffle would be British schoolboys playing Lead Belly's repertoire in the mid-1950s. So there was a guy named Lonnie Donegan, an English guy, who had a hit with Lead Belly's Rock Island Line in 1955. 
He's a Chilliwangong boy Going down the Rock Island line Yes, yes, she's a mighty good road Oh, well, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road The Rock Island line is a road to ride it The Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road And if you want to ride, you got to ride it Like a find you get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island line Well, I may be right, I may be wrong I know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road He went out on tour and when he played Liverpool, he played a week in Liverpool, two shows a, a day. George Harrison came every night of the week. He was 13. Paul McCartney came one night. He was 14. And John Lennon, we don't know if he came, but he formed his own skiffle band a week after Donegan had played in Liverpool. And skiffle was the music that Donegan played. It was basically African-American roots music with a bit of cowboy music thrown in as well. The reason it's crucial is because it introduces the guitar into British pop. Up until that point, there had been, there really had been no guitars. So that moment that Donegan comes in and inspires everybody, and he does inspire everybody. I mean, almost every British band of the 1960s began as a skiffle band. That schoolboy craze to play lead belly songs and other blues and uh, jazz and country songs is what acted as a nursery for the British invasion of America in the 1960s in the wake of the Beatles. It's startling to think about British pop music with no guitars. I mean, think of all the greats, including yourself, getting up there solo with an electric guitar as a balladeer. How did that come about? Well, I'd, I'd loved the balladeers of the 1960s, Bob Dylan and all the other singer-songwriters. I'd always been drawn to that idea, but it didn't really seem to be a space for someone like that in our culture. At the time, I was came of age as a 19-year-old doing punk rock, and that was all bands. So I was in a band for a long time. Uh, but when that broke up and I'd run out of options, I had thought to myself, well, you know, I'm going to give this one more go. If I played an acoustic guitar, they would have made me go and play in folk clubs. But playing an electric guitar, they had to let me play in rock clubs. So that's where I made my stand, and that's how I managed to, uh, to get a career off the ground. Woody Guthrie was an important role model for you, and I read that one of the things you appreciated about him was that even addressing serious issues, there was always a certain hopefulness that he conveyed. And your song, Island of No Return, is a good example. Would you talk about the song? It's a, a song about, ostensibly about the Falklands War, but it's really about uh, working class lads having no future and finding themselves in a war, having signed up to just be in the army in a time of peace, they suddenly find themselves in a shooting war in the South Atlantic. Digging all day, digging all night to keep my foxhole out of sight. Digging into dinner on a plate on my knees. Smell a damp webbing in the morning breeze. Fear in my stomach, fear in the sky. By dinner with a weary eye. After all this, it won't be the same. Messing around and souls blind. Falling, move out. We're going to a party 
And that happened just a year after I was in the army. I could have been there. But I didn't want to write in a way that condemned the squaddies who went to fight there because I know they're just a bunch of working class lads. I wanted to make sure that I had some sympathy with them. And I, you know, expressed that as clearly as I could in the song rather than be dismissive of them. I remain, I feel that way continually about people who serve their country, particularly in the ranks. They're doing a very, very important job. Yeah, part of the tragedy of the war in Vietnam and America's role in that war was the student movement and later in the 60s, the number of protests against the war really did not take into consideration those who were sacrificing their lives. Many of them without any other option. Yes. It's not the same now, but when I was joining up, the British Army was a sponge of working-class lads. You know, if you couldn't get a job, if you were in some dead-end town somewhere and you wanted to escape that. I mean, where I grew up was a suburb of London. I can't say I was living in a dead-end town. But if you were, you know, in one of the, you know, former industrial cities in the north of England, the Army, that's a way out as good as university. And none of those lads imagined they would ever be fighting Argentinians on an island in the South Atlantic. Billy... Going back to Skipple, Mm. what was the influence on you? Well, I think the thing about Skipple was it was very similar in many ways to punk rock. First of all, it was self-empowering. You know, you didn't have to wait for someone to come along and discover you. You just formed a band. That was the same for punk. That was the same for uh, Skiffle. It represented a rejection of the pop music of the day. It was a way of creating a new space in society for Skiffle. Those were our first British teenagers, really, the Skifflers. They were the first manifestation of teenagers. It seems very late in our country, 1955, 1956. But you have to remember that rationing began in wartime, didn't end till 1954. So it's very hard for young people to have their own culture. They weren't catered for. They had to clear their own space. And likewise with punk, we didn't feel catered for by the pop music of the day. So we had to clear our own space. And it was also a a kind of break with the the past. Skiffle by introducing the guitar into uh, British pop music gave that generation something to hold to show that they were not like their parents because you know their parents had been through the war that overshadowed everything that had happened since and they needed something to declare their independence and so punk also was a declaration of independence (laughs) we made our own culture they made their own culture we made our own culture so so in many ways skiffle um was proto-punk music and, you know, and it's all based on songs with three chords as well. I mean, that's the great thing. If you, if you could play three chords, you could play most of Lonnie Donegan's songs and Lead Belly's songs and Woody's songs. That's the great thing about it. Billy, how have you seen your songwriting and your music career evolve with the times? I mean, do you still consider yourself essentially a punk rocker who's a balladeer? I think the ideas that I got from punk rock, which weren't about haircuts or trousers, and were actually about doing things yourself, self-empowerment, you know, that's what gave me the fire to write a book about Skiffle. You know, I just picked it out of the air. It was something I felt strongly about. I was called in to see a publisher about another project, and I said, look, I'm going to send you something next month. I'm going to write 10,000 words. I want you to have a look at it. And 
I think that that aspect of punk, that stays with me. That was my defining culture of my youth. And I think a lot of us are defined by a particular culture in our youth. And that was the, that was the culture that defined me, not in a stylistic sense, but much more so in a, a practical, ethical sense. Do you think there's another pamphlet in the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things to, to be writing about. There's a lot of issues out there. I mean, the whole justification for writing anything, like it's creating anything, I would say, whatever kind of creative person you are, the only justification you need is that you are offering with your creation a different perspective on something, artistic, social. You've just got another idea that you, you want to write a love song that talks about something that you feel. That aspect of what I do carries on, and I'm always thinking of what am I going to do next? A couple of weeks ago, just when the um, lockdown began, we missed our granddaughter's birthday. She's four years old. So I made up a little song around one of her favourite stories and sent it to her. And I just thought I'll I'll post that on Facebook as well because other people might have kids might want to hear it because it's quite a a famous story. It's called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. It's quite a famous story in in England. It's had a quarter of a million views. Oh, that's so, marvellous. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself now, well, this is cool. I, li- I like this. I'm going to see if I can think of another kid's story because it's a, a sister's birthday coming up next. Now, maybe I'll write a song for her as well. So it's you've you got to try and keep yourself, to keep yourself interested, you've got to find new things to try and not get stuck in a rut. And I, you know, whether it's the book about skiffle, book about politics, writing kids' songs, writing political songs, it's just, you've got to keep yourself engaged. And that's what I try and do. Billy Bragg, I so admire the depth and breadth of your talent, your thinking. Thank you so very much. This has been a privilege. It's very kind of you, Lois. It's been lovely to talk to you. Stay safe. Punk rock balladeer and writer Billy Bragg. You can catch Billy Bragg's live virtual author event with Acapella Books, Wednesday, May 6th at 6 p.m. More information about the event will be on our website, wabe.org. For the past 10 years, the Atlanta Music Project has been providing intensive tuition-free music education for underserved youth in their own neighborhoods. Dante Ramo is the founder and CEO of the Atlanta Music Project, known as AMP. He joins us now via Zoom. Dante, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. Happy to be back. One of the great things about your program is that the lessons and activities take place after school. So kids have this to look forward to all day. What happened when the pandemic closed schools? We generally follow the Atlanta Public Schools when it comes to our programming. And if, for example, there's inclement weather and the Atlanta Public Schools cancels classes, we generally will follow suit. And so on March 12th, I think it was, Atlanta Public Schools announced that they were going to shut down the schools. And so we shut down our programming. And then for the next two weeks, we pondered what to do to continue to reach our students. We spoke with our staff, we spoke with our parents, and we decided to go online with as much of our programming as possible, Uh, so virtual classes. So you have 
the Atlanta Music Project online now. Many of your students are provided their instruments through the program, and as you state, AMP is dedicated to underserved neighborhoods. With the Atlanta Music Project online, I wondered how many students own computers. When we shut down our facility and sent our full-time staff to work from home, we made sure to send our own students home with their music instruments. And the, the challenge with virtual uh, classes has been the technology. And, and so we have this um, online learning series, we call it AMP Online, and it's divided into four different components. We have these master classes, which are open to anybody can tune in. Um, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 4 and 5 p.m., we have master classes for different instruments. And then we have AMP Talks, which features uh, webinars, panelists speaking about issues and topics of relevance and nonprofit management, music education, arts, fundraising, and that sort of thing. And then we're going to be doing some long-form fireside chats or podcasts, if you will. And then even later on this summer, we're going to be doing some some concerts um, featuring our faculty and our students. But in all this, um, we really came to realize that the the technology setup of the students is important. Having a computer, having a webcam, having a microphone, having headphones. And certainly that's been a challenge because we have to find out who has what, and then we have to find out how we're gonna supplement what they have so they have a very meaningful online experience. How many students are you able to reach online if they don't have access to computers? Are you phoning them? Normally, during the school year, we serve about 200 students. And then in the summertime, we serve 150 students. And so we're able currently to continue to serve 200 students. And the way we're doing it is using the Zoom platform, like many of us are. And luckily, that requires a cell phone at a minimum. You don't have to have a laptop. You don't have to have Wi-Fi. But certainly, your experience is better if you have the Zoom app on your laptop. And so we're reaching every every student that we normally would serve. The question is, what is the quality of the experience? So for example, we have students that are home with their siblings uh, in a family of five or six children. And so we've had students take the online classes we offered in a closet, for example, just so they can have a quiet space. We have other students who they don't have the Zoom app, and so they've been using FaceTime or WhatsApp for their private lessons with their teachers, which is not as good a platform for music lessons, we have found anyway. We try to reach them where they are, the same way that in regular times, our modus operandi, if you will, is to bring the highest quality music education to areas of Atlanta where you wouldn't typically find it. With no excuses, we're going to provide the instrument, the teaching artists, the transportation, Whatever the student needs, we're going to provide. We're trying to do the same thing here online, but we're still working on it because it's only been about two weeks. So, Oh, my goodness. Well, hats off to you. Hey, Mozart and Beethoven never had a deal with this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this has is, this is, this is definitely sparked the creativity of our, our students, our faculty, and we're having to do everything without being able to come into contact. So even if we have to order new materials or method books or sheet music, it all has to be done touchless. And so it's, it's a whole new day. It's a whole new day. But, you know, this, this is the job we signed up for. We think that providing consistent 
music education at the same time every day, the way we would do it under normal circumstances provides a sense of normalcy for everybody that's involved. That's important in times where you can't control anything. At least you can control that you'll get your music lesson at the same time every day, just like in regular times. Have you heard back from any of the students with appreciation or, or just comments about their being happy to be a part of AMP during this bizarre time we're in now? I mean, you can see it in the, in the videos. We had a, yesterday, we started a four-class masterclass of violin lessons with one of our faculty members, Grace Kim. At one point in the meeting, after Grace was done teaching a concept, she asked for students to come up on the video and volunteer. And so we had four students volunteering to perform this concept and with Grace and everybody up on the screen. And you could just see, you could see Grace's face was, she was so pleased to see the kids and the kids were so pleased to be able to see each other and play for each other. And so we definitely see the joy in the process. And of course, we've spoken to parents a lot. So we're, we're uh, unofficial babysitters, you might, you might say as well. You know, we're helping, we're helping kids to occupy their time and, and allowing parents to work while this is happening. So we've been receiving some great compliments. Well, I would say you are far beyond babysitters. You are keeping kids connected to the power of music. And I know that is one of your highest priorities. You mentioned the violin program. I remember you brought in one of your students, gosh, maybe two years ago now, a teenager who talked about how the violin meant so much to him because of his mother's lullabies. It reminded him of his mother's lullabies. And he mentioned that the music of John Williams excited him more than any other composer. Can you tell us where that student is now? Yes, of course. You're referring to Donovan. Yeah, Donovan, uh, he came to your studio to do an interview after having performed in Mexico City in 2018, I remember. So the violin class that I referenced earlier uh, with Miss Grace, uh, Donovan was, was in it. And so he was on the video last night. He's doing well. Uh, he's going to be a junior uh, in the fall in high school. And he's, uh, he was the concert master of the first violin, first chair violin of the Atlanta Music Project Senior Youth Orchestra this year. And uh, he has come leaps and bounds. His playing has improved since you last heard him. He's a great young man. He works hard. And a shout out to his mom, uh, Miss Fuller, who is very supportive. He's doing great. We're very proud of him. Dante Rumo, every time we speak, I just have greater admiration for your work. Thank you so very much. And here's to continued success and greater resources for you at the Atlanta Music Project. Thank you so much for having me, Lois. Appreciate it. Dante Ramo is the founder and chief executive officer of the Atlanta Music Project. More information about their offerings is on our website, wabe.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. We know that book clubs are popular. Well, now the Alliance Theater is offering a counterpart with a virtual play club today at 6 p.m., Playwright Pearl Clegg and director Tanache Kajisi Bolden will discuss Sweat, the 2017 Pulitzer Prize winning play by Lynn Nottage. And there will be a virtual seat in the audience for you, free of charge. Pearl Clegg and Tanache Kajisi Bolden are with us now via Zoom. Thank you for joining us, and welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you for having us. We always love to be with you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Well, this is a fantastic offering. Who came up with the idea, and how does it work? So we're calling this our virtual play club. And, you know, we were all so saddened, and I think it was the communal heartbreak when we found out that our show was gonna be shut down because of COVID-19. And we had all done so much work, especially our audience development team and our engagement crew. They'd done so much work with so many partners around the city who were really invested in the story. And they felt that this piece of art was able to tell their story in a truthful way that wasn't otherizing them. And so we felt that that work should not just go to waste. And this place sits in its best place as a community conversation. And so the idea is that we are sharing the play. At the beginning of the week, we let the script get, uh, Lynn gave us permission to share that script free of charge. So people could read it. We have guideposts throughout our series to help people understand how to read a play, which is different from reading a book. And then we have these really wonderful interviews that are throughout with some of our creative team, just helping us see another look into the process of doing what we do as theater makers. On the Alliance Theater website, people are invited to read the script, as you described, and even though it's today your offering is this evening, there's still time to read the script. For those who go to the website, you can click on Read Script, that in itself will be a new experience for many. What are your thoughts about this aspect of sharing things that are a part of your everyday world with those for whom it is entirely novel? Well, I think that for me as a playwright, one of the things that's really important is that we keep plays and theater alive during this moment when we can't actually have our audience in front of us. And since we know that um, the audience is really the last element of any piece of theater, you know, you can be in rehearsal and it can be great and everything is wonderful, but until you invite the audience in, it's not done. So that I think that this way of keeping in touch with our audience is so important um, during this time. And I also think it will give people 
another way to look at a play. It's really different to read a play. And I know people who have gone to the theater for years who never think about reading a play. You know, once they got out of high school, they kind of you know, they, they brushed their hands and said, okay, we don't have to do that anymore. But I think that's because they didn't have what Tanache was talking about, which is some kind of guidance for how to read a play, to have fun with a play on the page, and then try to imagine what you'd be if it was complete. Pearl, you make such a great point. I haven't read a play since college. At least I hadn't until I read one of yours. I remembered how I smiled. This was just a few years ago when I saw your instruction beat. And I thought, wow, I hadn't even thought about it. Here I thought actors did that on their own, that they knew about timing. And, and it's all there in the script. I think that's the thing that's so wonderful is when you read it, you also see the the stage directions, you see the description of the set. And of course, all of that comes together because you've got a director who can guide the actors from where they are to where that play is. So that it, it really is so amazing to see how theater works. And I know that there are actors who you know can't stand playwrights. There are directors who can't stand any of us. But I think the thing is, we all know, even when we're fussing because somebody didn't do exactly what we wanted them to do, even if that beat wasn't exactly what we hoped it would be, what we're always trying to do is tell a story and tell it in the most effective way so that at the end of that experience, people feel like they saw some real people going on a real journey on that stage. And that's what we're all working for. So we, you know, opening night, we all forgive each other and we're glad that we threw it. Love it. Now... Of course, it was disappointing that Sweat could not be presented live on the Alliance stage as we expected. Why is Sweat particularly effective to discuss in this virtual offering? You know, that's such a, a great question, and I, I have to answer it by saying that, you know, as artists, so much of our growth and our craft it demands this consistent evolution and metamorphosis of us to pursue the question of what it means to be human. And often when we get a play, there's this distance between us and the subject matter. And our rehearsal is the closing up of that gap as we get to know these people, that we understand their circumstances. And this play is about um, union workers who have been locked out or are from their place of work where they identify themselves. It's been shut down. And so for the first time in my career, I'm experiencing exactly what the subject matter of my story is that I was going to be creating. For many of us who are working on sweat, we are union members. We got locked out, shut down from our place of work and what we do. So on a personal level, I think that the timing of this play and being able to keep it alive as artists, it's very personal for us to now complete what we can of telling the story. As a citizen, you know, I think, I know Lynn, she's, she's very passionate about human rights um, conflicts and wanted to tell these stories through art so that her art was her activism. And so this play helps us to explore the notion of what can theater do in a moment of public crisis. It explores relationships and it explores trust and how we identify ourselves as workers, but also how we identify as a community. 
Can you give us some examples of how different characters in the play respond to their crisis? No spoilers, of course. No spoilers. Well, Lynn creates this element of mystery in the way that the play unfolds and that we meet a couple of the characters at a certain period of time, which is present day, and then we go back in time to understand how they got there. This is a group of friends who've spent their lives sharing drinks and secrets and laughs and, and just while working together on a line on a factory floor. But as I said, they start to experience layoffs and the picket lines begin to chip away at their trust as friends. And one of the characters, Tracy, she has an opportunity for promotion. And this is something that it, it disrupts what they have created, this, this ecosystem that they have created. And so we see how she is torn between the decision of self-promotion and also trying to stay in the same, I wouldn't say box, but trying to stay in the same place as the rest of her friends. And so she's torn between her personal relationship and also an opportunity to advance within the company and make really hard decisions that will affect her family. And we should note the play is set in 2008 after the economy collapsed then. Yet another layer for us to identify with now. Each of you as theater artists has explored social issues in your own creative work. Would you share some of those thoughts with us now as they pertain to this pandemic moment? Well, I think that one of the things that all of us um, who are working creatively have had to come up against in this moment is what does our work mean and what can it mean at a moment like this one, at a moment when people are literally struggling not only with the health ramifications of this virus, but also with the huge rippling out of the economic effects of all of this. And I think that many times when I write about social issues or I write about something that I I want people to get excited about, it doesn't have the overarching fear and panic that people feel because there is a life and death illness that they can't do anything about. So I think a lot of what we're doing in keeping in touch with people, in keeping them aware of what artists are doing, is to address that fear and panic, is to say, don't be afraid. I know you're in your house by yourself or you're working at one of those essential jobs and you're worrying about your own health and the health of your family, but to kind of do what theater and art do best, which is to show us that we're all in it together. And people, you know, now that's like a big slogan, we're all in it together, we're all in it together. But in theater, we know that's true. Professionally, we know it because if the lighting person doesn't do the job they're supposed to do, if the actor doesn't know the lines, if the director doesn't know the play, and if it's a bad play, it's not going to work because we are literally all in this together. And I think that our commitment to that kind of idea 
ripples out in the social justice work that we do, especially at a moment like this one, when this play explores workers, it explores who is regarded as expendable and who is not expendable. When it looks at what does that job have to do with your own self-worth, with what you think about yourself when you go home every day. And those are questions that many of us did not think about in such a personal way. And now it's what Tanache was talking about. I mean, I'm a union member too, playwrights have a union. So I had seven productions scheduled of a new play for next season. And I have no idea if any of them will go on, which of course makes me sad because I love my work and I love to see my work done, but which also has a tremendous economic impact, not just on me, but on the directors of those productions, on the actors who had already auditioned and been um, cast in those productions, so that all of the work that we do is so connected that I think we can see it so clearly in this play that we're bringing our own emotional lives in a way that many of us don't have to do in a production of Cinderella or something wonderful, but something that is really a fairy tale isn't necessarily what we're thinking and feeling when we get up every day. Alliance Theatre playwright in residence, Pearl Clegg, and director-actor Tanache Kajizi-Bolden. Their conversation about sweat is part of the Alliance Theatre Virtual Play Club this evening at 6 o'clock on Facebook Live. More information will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with a celebration of John Williams' music for Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. Our new theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Chew Records. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and Summer Evans. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. And please do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. 
Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.